Hello everyone um, and welcome to our COLA Conversations. My name's Emma Atwell. Um, just for my description, I'm, I'm a blonde uh, white woman and my pronouns are she, her. Um, I am the, one of the producers at Ocola Theatre um, who are hosting um, this series of, of conversations that's covered all sorts of topics that have particularly come up during um, COVID. Um, our question this evening is um, COVID, sorry, is COVID taking women back to the 1950s? Um, and I'm really delighted uh, with the speakers that we have um, joining us today. Um, so Hannah Barron-Brown is going to be uh, chairing this um, conversation and uh, I'm going to pass over to Hannah to kick everything off. Fantastic. Thank you, Emma. And thank you everyone for joining us on what is, at least in Yorkshire, a gloriously wonderful summer evening. Um, and yeah, if you all drop off at eight o'clock to go and watch the football, we're not going to take it personally. I mean, I might cry myself to sleep, so please don't, but we would understand. Um, so thank you for joining us for what I'm sure is going to be a fantastic debate. And I'm really excited to hear from my fellow speakers on this. Uh, my visuals, I'm a white woman with shoulder length, reddish hair and massive glasses. Um, and I go by she, her pronouns. So um, to introduce myself, I'm Hannah Barron-Brown. I'm one of the deputy leaders of the Women's Equality Party. I'm also a GP and a disability activist. So many, many hats. Um, first over, I'm going to pass over to Titi to introduce herself, please. Hi, everyone. My name is Titi Lodaldu. I'm happy to go by Titi. And my pronouns are she, her. I'm a black woman with long braids, a nose ring, a big smile, and I'm wearing a green top. Um, I'm the company director of Sour Lemons, a company that works with organisations in the arts and culture sector to support them in becoming anti-racist. I'm also a writer and a producer, and the work that I do is about celebrating, giving space to, hosting, enabling and advocating people who are from the Black and global majority with a specific focus on Black women. Fantastic. Thank you, Titi. Now, Eliane, please. Hello everyone, I'm Eliane Glazer. My pronouns are she, her. I'm short um, white woman with dark hair and um, I'm a writer. I write about contemporary politics and culture. I write books and, and also journalism for papers like The Guardian and Prospect and the London Review of Books. And I'm also a radio producer. Fantastic, thank you. And last but most certainly not least, Reshem, please. Thank you very much. So my name is Reshem, um, or Resh if you prefer, just don't make it sound like something you don't want on your skin. Um, my nine to five, oh sorry, my descriptor, um, I am a British Asian woman of Indian heritage, so uh, brown skin, dark brown or black eyes, depending on the sun, and currently black hair, but soon to have some brown in it too, um, and kind of curly, but that depends on my hair's mood on the day. Um, so it may or may not be the same tomorrow. Um, my nine to five, um, although who has a nine to five ever, um, is working at a not-for-profit strategy consultancy, trying to embed responsible leadership, of which, of course, um, gender equality, racial equality, um, and the intersections are one of the core components of the things we talk to leaders about. But in the rest of my time, my labor of love, I'm the head of engagement for an organization called Women to Win, co-founded by the former prime minister back in 2005 to try and elect more women to parliament. I'm a trustee for the Fawcett Society, which is the UK's leading gender equality charity. I chair a partnership of six charities called the Equal Power Parliament Project, which is about getting more women at all levels of politics and parliament. Um, and I am also an associate fellow for a think tank called Bright Blue. Um, so very excited to be here and thanks to see you all. Um, hope we keep you beyond eight. <laughs> Thank you everyone. Um, so as you can tell we've got a fantastic panel of very knowledgeable people. I'm looking forward to learning a lot in the next hour. Um, so to try and put us in a bit of context, this evening we're talking about whether Covid has taken women back to the 1950s. So I did my slightly geeky thing of getting in a Wikipedia hole and trying to work out what the 1950s were like for women. Um, so they were kind of on the basis just prior to the 1950s in 1942, we saw the beverage report, which is kind of the basis of the welfare state. And this rather embodied the gender divisions that we still kind of see this report. So it kind of had women as this universal homogenous grouping of people who were just destined to become dependent housewives. That was very much the kind of foundation that the 1950s was brought up on. And then towards the end of the decade in 1959, we had the Crowther Report. Now, the Crowther Report, 
There's a quote. I've got a quote. So the crowd report said, um, girls need to be prepared for their likely futures. The prospect of courtship and marriage should rightly influence the education of adolescent girls. And in the 1950s, the majority of women were expected to leave school at the age of 15 and indeed did. In fact, I was chatting to my mum about this panel earlier and she said it was still pretty outrageous that she was allowed to stay on till sixth form and she was doing it in the 1970s. So the context in which the 1950s is set really lends itself to a fascinating discussion tonight about whether or not the pandemic has taken us back there. So roll us forward 50 odd years and where are we? Well, longer than that. Where are we now? So at the moment, women make up 77% of healthcare workers, 83% of social care workers, and 92% of childcare workers. They are the most likely to be single parents with potential childcare issues, particularly as we've seen during the pandemic. And they do make up the majority of people living in poverty. So women are not didn't necessarily start the pandemic in a good place. And a lot of those issues around who has worked in the areas that are most likely to be affected by COVID, the ones that are the major exposure areas for COVID, those roles have been taken on by women. And women are the most likely to have lost their jobs. They're the most likely to have been furloughed as well. So it's definitely been a really difficult 18 months for women. And I think we're going to have a really great discussion about how we hope to bring things forward. But first off, first question for the panel, and I have warned them what the questions are because I'm nice, but if anything does fly up in your mind and you want to have a burning question, please do stick it in the chat and we will have time for them later. So what do you each think is the single biggest issue facing women today? So Titi, I came to you first earlier, so I'll go to Resham first now, if that's okay. Oh, I got the, the easy introduction last and then you throw a toughie at me first. Okay. Um, I think the biggest challenge facing women is the view um, amongst um, a number of men and some women that we have already achieved equality. And it frustrates me so much when I hear people say, um, but you have equal opportunity. You can go to university just as much as men. You can do X, Y, Z. You know, they'll, they'll ream off this whole stream of things we can do of course um, and the thing that is never mentioned is all the other things we have to do um, in addition and I just wanted to add because you know I'm a stats geek that um, during September and early October last year ONS statistics show that women spent 64% more time on unpaid household work than men and women spent 99% more time on unpaid childcare than men and if you think about it this is a huge amount of time energy effort mental strain anxiety pressures on mental and physical health that women are still facing every single day that is unaccounted for and unrewarded and until that happens happens to equalize to make it so that women get equally rewarded and recognized we will not have achieved equality in fact we are just shouldering a greater portion of the burden than we were ever before so that to me is the biggest issue this um, this total uh, false belief that we have achieved equality you see that that was a perfect answer for the first <laughs> one so I, I don't know what you're worrying about <laughs> nailed it so coming Titi I'm going to come to you now if that's okay yeah, Risham, I kind of feel like that was a mic drop. Okay, mic drop by everyone. <laughs> like it's done. <laughs> um, so during the um, pandemic, um, myself and I'm a part of a team called Black Women in Theatre, and primarily we, we celebrate um, Black um, um, women and what how we've contributed to, to British theatre. Um, and anyway, so we, we, you know, the the person that founded it, Stella, she noticed that. A lot of the redundancies um, for, from, you know, theatres and stuff um, were lower paid jobs, you know, like the bar staff or the learning and participation, marketing assistant. And um, and who were they all, you know, they were all mainly um, women who took up these positions. And, um, and when we did a campaign um, um, in September where we just were like there, we need to support um um, black and um, global majority people um, and um, so we did a crowdfund and we got um, like 20 grand um, and then it was match funded by Arts Council to support 50 people who have been made redundant or, or the risk of losing their job and maybe over 90% of those were, were women um, and um, 
and again when we looked at their jobs they were all kind of lower paid so I think a lot of it is still around um a lot of women aren't in leadership positions as well they aren't you know I um yeah I, I you know that was this was really noticed so I think there is still that so I don't think there's equality if we throw in equity there if you throw in things like um if you, you know now it really down to um race and um disability then you know even more disparity so I just think it's really about those patriarchal structures um essentially um and I'm just coming from a lens of the arts and culture sector because that's what I'm in um, absolutely. So for me, it was definitely around that there are still not enough leadership positions that women are in. So a lot of the jobs that were going as were were um, were women. Fantastic. I think oh, we're, we're covering everything already. Eliane, I, I'm not sure what you're going to be able to add to that, but I'm sure you're going to come out with something remarkable. So Eliane, what do you think the single biggest issue facing women is today? Well, when I introduced myself earlier, I was so busy trying to think how I should describe my physical appearance that I forgot to mention my new book, which is behind me here, um, which is about motherhood. It's called Motherhood and Manifesto. So I want to concentrate on motherhood, which is um, only one of the problems that women today face, but it's what I'm interested in currently. Um, so, I mean, it was interesting what you mentioned about the 50s and um I believe that at least in the 50s, that was the, the age when the state and state infrastructure was really celebrated explicitly. But I think now that um, now that now motherhood is really being privatized and mothers are kind of atomized in our own homes and left to make our own arrangements, trying to combine work with childcare by ourselves in this very sort of informal and ad hoc and, and um, isolated way. So in many ways, I think um, motherhood has become more difficult. Um, in the 1950s, you know, we had Betty Friedan, who wrote The Feminine Mystique, who, who really um, described this, the, this domestic imprisonment that a lot of mothers at that time felt. Um, but now we won't even use the word housewife to describe that sense of loneliness and isolation and, and um, confinement in the domestic sphere that a lot of mothers still feel. Um, because of this language of choice that we have and, and the assumption um, of, of equality and um, that um, women are doing things because making choices out of um, a sense of freedom and uh, that, that women are empowered to make those choices. In fact, I believe that women are constrained um, in the choices that we make um, due to our circumstances. And um, if women um, stop work, it's often not out of choice, but because they can't combine work with childcare. If they work, it may not be um, out of choice, but because it's a financial obligation. So there's so many ways in which motherhood um, is bad for, for women these days. I think there's also an interesting thing about um, the, the relationship between motherhood and feminism, that in, in lots of other spheres um, of women's equality, it's easy to make the case that women should be equal to, to men. But where motherhood is concerned, something strange happens, I think, which is that mothers feel that they need to sacrifice their own needs and wants and desires to, to the child. And um, this expectation of, of self-sacrifice is incredibly dominant around motherhood. And actually, that's a myth because the interests of mothers and children are actually aligned. It's not a zero-sum game. But this expectation of self-sacrifice means that mothers, I think, give up the campaign or the desire for equality that they fought for as young women. And it's almost like, well, you know, reality bites. It's time to accept, you know, our fate as kind of slaves to our offspring. And, um, and I think this, this, that, that is really what we have to try and challenge if we're going to, um, if mothers, um, as well as women in general, are going to um, to be equal to, to men. Fantastic, thank you. You see, I told you all this was gonna be great. Like, honestly, I'm buzzing already. So um, our next question is, uh, to what extent has COVID either improved or worsened the position of women? Now, I'm gonna kind of kick off with this in that I have 
been really, really trying to find a way that COVID may have improved things for women. I found one thing, it's not massive, and I'm very scared it's going to be taken away. So this is a shameless plug, really. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, and this is coming from me as a doctor, so I get very obsessed by this. At the beginning of the p- pandemic, um, because it was so difficult for women to potentially get to abortion clinics and family planning clinics, telemedicine became an option for women who wanted early abortions. You could have a telephone appointment and get the pill delivered to your door and have the abortion at home, which is a fantastic step forward and something that many of us have been campaigning for for a very, very long time. Now, the challenge with this is that when it was brought in at the beginning of the pandemic, it was said you can do this until we're going to do this for two years or until the end of the pandemic, whichever is the sooner. Now, the end of the pandemic, I'm not sure whether there's going to be some big party or cannons, balloons or something. I know. I'm not sure how we're going to necessarily know when that is. Um, but there is a serious risk that this is going to be taken away and stepped back. And I think that would be a big shame. Um, so it's something that the Women's Equality Party have been campaigning about a lot in recent weeks. So, yeah, that's my little shameless plug. That's the one thing I think that I can find that's improved for women during the pandemic. And I'm genuinely scared it's going to go away again. Um So in terms of things that have worsened, I think, you know, we're going to be probably end up talking about care a lot. This lot are probably going to talk about it far more effectively than I am. But I know from my own experience, I was working in a care home for the first six months of the pandemic and everything that we're now being told that was apparently put in place to protect care homes, I can officially tell you it's nonsense um it was awful there was next to no ppe our staff were terrified and what really struck me during that time was that a lot of most of the staff in the care homes and it was elderly people who were meant to be getting a bit of rehab following a hospital admission um most of our staff were female many of them were from ethnic minority backgrounds so at higher risk of coronavirus we had patients coming out of hospital who hadn't been tested And so we didn't know what the risks were to us and to the staff and to our colleagues. And a lot of them were going home to families and other vulnerable people. Um, And yeah, as I say, the majority of them were women. So I think that there's been the kind of very acute women have been in the roles that have been most exposed to the pandemic and the outcomes of that are worse. Men had worse mortality rates, but women have higher infection rates and higher chances of long COVID. So there are some really interesting things we need to pull out about the medicine of this, but I think it's really important that we do kind of have a look at the elements of where care has come into this, because obviously the responsibilities for childcare, all the challenges, the bubbles that seem to keep bursting at schools, all of that is having a massive impact. The majority of that impact seems to be on women. So this time I'm going to mix around the order a little bit. Titi, can I come to you first, please? Yeah, so um, so just before I joined Sour Lemons, I've, I've been in this job for six weeks. Um, I was working um, in Coventry, um, City of Culture Trust. And um, and we work with, you know, we basically it's a, you know, it's a year-long celebration of art culture, whatever. And of course it had to get pushed back because of COVID but a lot of the work that we were doing is around the community and the biggest thing and we work very closely with the police um because we're working like with vulnerable families from newly arrived families but the but the number one thing that was really quite prevalent was um domestic violence domestic abuse that had um it wasn't like necessarily had shot up because I'm not quite sure the statistics but obviously being at home um you know, in, in for prolonged amounts of time and whatever. So, and so a lot of yeah, women were in danger. So there was, they were trying to do a lot to how can they still protect women in this pandemic when we're not meant, especially at the early stages where we're not meant to go out of our houses if we couldn't, if we didn't have to just to the shop. So they were trying to do things where like local, um, regular like local stores, you know, supermarkets, it could have been like a safe haven or whatever. So that was that was definitely that really, really affected it, you know, apart from vulnerable people anyway, but a lot of a lot of women. Um and um and I and coming speaking from being a mother myself, um, what was what was really hard is that even though I had an organization that was supportive of people that had caring responsibilities, and um, but I, I, you know, there was a lot of us that found ourselves apologizing for our children, like the noises that they made or the crying or the attention, whatever. And at the very beginning, it was like, oh, they're so cute. It's fine. Let Josiah just sit on your lap and whatever. And after a while, it was like, 
God, her child again. And um, but then I just thought, well, I'm not apologizing for my child or his existence <laughs> because he's four. He doesn't know that there's this pandemic and he's seeing mummy working at home. Great. There's more time with mummy. So he wants to be with me. So at the very beginning, it was like, OK, sorry, he's just you know playing and you can hear, you know, um, Peppa Pig or whatever. But very quickly, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not apologizing. Um, I'm still able to do my work. I'm still able to be really, really, you know, focused or whatever. But I kind of felt like at the beginning there was this, yes, I'm at home and, you know, my child's here. I'm going to try and make sure that they know that I'm still being productive and, and they know that I can still do this job, even though that's going on around me. And, and speaking with other mothers um, or people, people with um, childcare responsibilities, it, we kind of like felt like that. And I'm, not just my work, like um, other people around and people I knew, it was just like, they felt like, yeah, we, you know, we need to, need to make sure that they know that I'm, you know, my boss or whatever knows I'm doing a good job still, you know, so that, that kind of pressure that, but after a while that did, I, I was like, no, I don't care. But at the very beginning, it wasn't very much like that because it was still, you know, there was a, still a lot of the um, kind of managers or whatever that was like, you know, we still need to be productive. Yes, we're in a pandemic, whatever, but we still need to be productive, you know, and I think if you had kind of like other types of responsibilities going on in your house, it was like, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I am still responsible. I'm still doing what I can. Yet my child's having a tantrum by my feet because he doesn't quite understand why I can't, you know, all of that. So that that felt really, really um, hard, actually. Um, and I'm not speaking for mothers all around, but I, I know for myself and a few people, it was tricky. Anna, you're on mute. I said I was going to do it at some point and I inevitably did. Right, I'll stop. Well, at least it's out the way now. Yeah, yeah, we're done now. Um, no, thank you. And thank you for bringing up um, domestic violence and abuse because we did see this massively spike during the pandemic. Yeah. And one of the most dis like upsetting things, I think, was that actually when women were trying to access services because of years and years of underfunding of domestic abuse services, we know that in London, like two thirds of women get turned away from refuges because they just don't have the space. Mm -hmm. And that's before we take into account the lack of LGBTQ specialists for refuges, accessible refuges. There's so many challenges in this sector. And yeah, it's been a massive issue during the pandemic. Um, and also one of the things around lockdown is that we know women are at highest risk when their perpetrators feel that they might be able to escape when they feel like the control is going to be taken away from them. So as lockdown eases and women were finding it easier to potentially leave their homes and seek help, that's when the risk of potentially, you know, escalated violence, murder was becoming more of a challenge because lockdown was easing and women were more likely to be able to escape that controlling environment. So yeah, it's been incredibly difficult. So thank you for raising that. Eliane, can I come can I, to Sorry, oh, Anna, can I just add in there? Cause I think it's important just so people really understand the scale of the problem. Um, we're talking about two and a half million adults. And of course men do suffer domestic violence and abuse, but two thirds of that two and a half million adults um, are women. Um, and Refuge said they had 120% increase in calls um, over the initial two lockdowns. And so I just think it's really important for us to recognize how big this problem is. And that is just what is reported. So it's um, it's very potentially the tip of an iceberg. And just because you'd mentioned the uh, telephone consult and abortion pills coming home, I think the one thing I think has been positive is um, Refuge ran a, a scheme with the rail companies to offer free travel, um, which of course is only a very short term um, solution. It doesn't deal with a lot of the other issues you mentioned, but it did and does mean that women could get away um, logistically uh, with transport. So hopefully we keep that and then build on that to, uh, to offer women more support at one of the hardest, most vulnerable times in their life. That's fantastic. Thank you. I love that you love statistics. It makes me really, really happy. Um, so Reshim, you've kind of started off by telling us a little bit about what you thought the one of the potential improvements was there. So how do you think it's worsened the situation for women? Well, I think lots. And I mean, I so I um, have spent nine years now working to get more women elected to Parliament. And I think, and I'll give a flippant example, just because it's an easy one, um, but just to try and make the point. But the reality is, no matter how good intentioned or how hard you work, how much advice you take, if you have a very different life experience to other people, it is very hard for you to understand what their life is truly like. So my flippant example um, 
I suffer polycystic ovaries, I'm also of Asian heritage. You can imagine um, how that would lead to me becoming very close friends to my waxing lady and beautician. And yet, even though it is societally acceptable for my fiance to have facial hair and not societally acceptable for me to, he was able to get a beard trim far earlier before I was able to um, go and get kind of stuff dealt with on my face. And it's just a really small, um, and, and you know, I was going to say silly and I was like, actually it's not silly because it's something that I and many other women are very self-conscious about. Um, but actually it's just one example how if you do not have enough women making decisions, if you do not have enough women in politics, if you do not have enough women in those rooms at every level, whether it's local politics, national politics, whether it's in the boardroom, um, if you do not have enough women making those inputs and sharing their perspectives, you are not going to have policy making or business making decisions that are going to be effective for 51% of the population. And I think the problem is when you go into emergency mode, um, as we did, um, you end up in a situation where you don't have the time or energy, nor do you make the time that you should to bring in those voices to represent women or ethnic minorities or intersectional issues that really have caused issues. Um, so whether it is childcare, whether it was mental health, whether it was unpaid household labor, whether it was the fact that, yes, of course, men were at higher risk of death, but, um, you know, women were much more likely to be furloughed with the, uh, you know, impact on their financial wealth um, and health and, and well-being. Uh, they, they were much more likely to um, have to go into work because of the kinds of jobs they did. They were much more likely to have to increase the time they spent on unpaid household work and childcare. So, um, you know, we've seen women already, as you'd said, starting kind of on the back foot really knocked uh, for six by the last year and a half um, and so you know you've got some women who um, you know I don't have children myself so I didn't suffer from the childcare element um, and actually in some ways it's been quite nice to not have to worry about working late and doing a commute worried about am I being followed home at night because I haven't left home but you know I'm in an incredibly privileged position for that to be my kind of key takeaway from not having to commute. Um, I've been able to stay at work just from home. So I think actually for the majority of women, whether it's because of childcare or redundancy risk or furlough risk, you know, women as a whole have seen uh, their confidence, their mental health, their physical health taking a real knock. Fantastic, thank you. And I think that point about representation is so, so key. I mean, obviously as a woman in politics, I see this a lot um, because we're just not represented. And I think it's even more pertinent when you kind of get to the intersections, as you say. So I know like I'm a wheelchair using doctor. We're quite niche, but it was only when I started training that I realized that as a woman in a wheelchair, if I was dependent on a hoist, I wouldn't be able to get a cervical smear in my GP surgery because less than 1% of GP surgeries in the UK have hoists. And it was only when as a disabled woman, I'm not even hoist dependent, but it was only when I kind of sat there and went, how is nobody? And so that's actually a big concern coming out of COVID because if you're one of the quarter of a million disabled people in the UK who rely on a hoist, if you need to have a basic examination, you need to go into hospital. And at the moment, the waiting lists are growing and growing and growing. So this group of people are gonna get even worse levels of care. Um, and it just goes to show we don't have people in different intersections, women, women of colour, disabled women, LGBTQ plus women. We don't have that representation around the table and all of these seemingly little things just get forgotten, but to huge detriment to these groups. So I think that representation point is really, really important. So Eliane, I'm going to come to you. What do, do you think COVID has improved life for women in any way or has it just worsened it? I think it's been very bad for mothers. So lots of examples, women um, going into labor and having miscarriages without their partners, which just strikes me as a barbaric decision that I don't understand how it could ever have been made. Um, but also as we've been hearing that the lockdowns revealed a really shocking disparity um, between mothers and fathers um, when it comes to childcare and domestic labour. And I think that the lockdowns really shone a light on what is actually a really well hidden secret in many even progressive or enlightened couples. Um, and 
So that was very interesting. I think that it was lots of interesting things came out, like, for example, that even though mothers were doing the bulk of the homeschooling and the domestic work and the childcare, um, fathers consistently overestimated the amount of homeschooling and domestic work they were doing. So I think one New York Times survey, the dad said they were doing 50% of the homeschooling and the mum said, no, actually it was 3%. Um, so, um, and that disparity applied even when both parents were working full-time from home or, and when both parents were furloughed. So I think that was really particularly shocking because it, it wasn't just revealing existing disparity, inequality. It was actually saying, no, this is a new, a novel situation. We've never had this before. Men are now at home for the first time, but they still are not taking on the childcare and the housework, which I thought was really, really concerning and indicative of very ingrained um, uh, norms about who does what. Um, so, yeah, and then, um, but I, the, I, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was that in some ways it felt like business as usual for mothers, you know, on the one, you know, both in terms of the domestic isolation and the kind of boredom of being at home all day with kids only interrupted by the odd trip to the supermarket, which is quite normal to many mothers working from home or not, not working um, outside the home. But also the multitasking that Titi, you, you mentioned, you know, that was revealed in those Zoom calls, that that multitasking just felt really familiar to, to me and many mothers. Um, that kind of Zooming between kids and work all the time. Um, it was just that it had a light shone on it um, in those Zoom calls. Um, so I felt that in a way, as a mother, my reality was being validated, but also that it was really um, showing up a real problem in terms of... Um, you know, um, inequality in partnerships, but also, yeah, what happens when the the very fragile, informal social networks that mothers have built up to deal with the lack of state support um, and often partner support, what happens when those networks are suddenly removed and the, the kind of threadbare nature of um, what it's like to be a mother now and the, the kind of the way that you have to patch together your life <laughs> was really laid bare. Thank you. I, I think they're all amazing points. I remember one of the moments at which I really kind of took a deep inhalation at work was when it, towards the end of a shift, one of my, the nurses I was working with said, oh, I've got to get home. Um, the kids need their homeschooling doing today. And I was like, oh, so what, what does your partner do? And she's like, oh, he's furloughed. And I was like, so is... Is he at home with the kids? Oh, yeah. I was like, so why are you going home to do the homeschooling? She's like, oh, it just won't get done unless I do it. And I was just kind of like, you're literally working ridiculous hours, saving lives with no PPE. How, how are you also having to? And it just continues to blow my mind today. So thank you, all of you. Um, quick plug to our wonderful audience. If you do have questions, because I, I know I could chat to these guys all evening, um, please do pop them in the chat. We are going to have some time for them. Um, otherwise, I can just keep chatting. But, you know, we'd love to hear from you. So do let us know if you've got any questions in the chat. So next up, and Elian, I'm going to come to you first this time, if that's OK. What do you think we can do to address or ideally reverse some of the issues faced by women during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I was just discussing that that sort of patched together networks that mothers rely on um, to to be able to work outside the home. Um, and, you know, I really hope that there'll be a discussion about about that and, and about the need for affordable childcare, for example, good quality affordable childcare, which is just so lacking um, and you know, so informalized and relies on um, so much extra labor and um, uh, yeah, and kind of exploitation and all sorts of, um, yeah, um, sort of social evil. So um, yeah, the, the problem of childcare and the lack of investment in um, affordable childcare um, has, has really been revealed, I think. Um, and then I guess, um, I think we also need to, well, I hope that we will start to rethink the structure of work and that there's been a lot of discussion about the future of work um, 
and in particular, you know, the kind of hybrid future of working from the office some of the time, working from home or even remote first working. So working just from home. And, you know, it's interesting because I've worked at home for many years, even before the pandemic. But I'm now thinking, actually, I really don't want to work from home ever again. So um but I th and I think there's a lot of those future of work um, discussions leave out mothers. And actually, it's quite interesting. This idea of, you know, well, you can just choose where you work, choose to go in or stay at home. But I think a lot of mothers, if it's optional, then then very few mothers will insist on going into the office because um, the default is just that it fits in with the school run or whatever to stay at home. And, I, and so I, I worry that these discussions about the hybrid future of work will further entrench um, some of the inequalities that we've been talking about to do with motherhood, that women will increasingly work from home and um, lose out on all of those you know, social networking um, opportunities, promotional opportunities um, uh, that you, you get from, from being present uh, with colleagues. So, I really want that I want motherhood to be put back into the future of work discussions. You know, so flexibility, yes, great, but not so that it increases inequality. And I guess, you know, ideally we'd be, we'd be talking about not working from home, but a shorter working week for both men and women. Um, there's been really interesting discussions that predate the pandemic about the a four day week um, for everyone. And um, I think that would be a really positive move and it would solve all sorts of problems at one stroke. So um, that's what I would like to, to see is, is that that will be a silver lining for me is to, to have those discussions move forward. I'm, I'm already sensing that we're going to get some incredible policy ideas coming out of this. I'm frantically making notes, though I should point out that universal childcare to the age of five is already a policy of the Women's Equality Party. So thank you for that. Um, and... Yeah, I think the structure of work point is really key. It's something that we're also particularly concerned about in the disability community around reasonable adjustments. Because I think a lot of workplaces are going, we don't need to put in ramps now, you can just work from home. And it's the same for mothers and it's the same for people who have responsibilities in the home. If you're given the option or working from home is now a thing and the expectation is you'll just take that, what are you missing out on in the workplace? Are you missing out on those water cooler moments? The promotion, are you looked over for promotions? That sort of thing. I think it's a really important discussion that we have to think about in terms of flexibility of working going forward. So thank you for raising that. Um, Reshan, I'm gonna to come to you next, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. So I think um, one of the things I think, I read Invisible Women when it first came out, um, and I don't know um, how many of you have. If you haven't, I had to read a, a chapter a day because I used to end at the end of each chapter, I'd be so enraged, I, didn't, I was physically shaking. Um, and what astounded me is every time I told a man about it, and I have to say, I, I think the men in my life, uh, my extended life, my friends are, are great, but every time I told them about something in it, there was almost this default to go, yes, but, and I'd go, you haven't even read it. Why are you arguing with me on something that has been clearly researched over a number of years, right? Like, why do, Why is your default to think there must be something wrong with it or there must be an excuse for why women get uh, the raw end of the deal in every single scenario, right? I, did, I couldn't understand that. Um, and, you know, the number of men I said, you should read this book in a month later, six months later, I'd say, did you read it? And they'd go, no, not yet time um, and so one of the things I think we really really need to do is stop saying teach your daughters to do this and really it's teach your sons to do something um, because the burden it feels to me always falls on um, the the less privileged group, whether that's BME people, whether that's people with disabilities, whether that's women. Um, and, you know, I, I say that as someone who recognizes I have a lot of privilege in my own ways, but the reality is it always falls on women to educate men why they should be different or behave different or why we deserve equality. And I think actually, I, you know, I don't have children yet. And, you know, one day I hope um, I'm blessed to, um, but I just think why should my daughter feel she has to work extra hard to get what she's, deserving of when 
very few people teach their sons that they should be giving up some of their privilege or sharing in that privilege. And the mental load is such a big element of it because right now, you know, I have lots of friends who and colleagues who have to deal with homeschooling. And the default, the responsibility, Hannah, as you said with your colleague, that the default is always that the woman will handle it, whether it's are we running low on toilet paper, which yes, of course, if it was March 2020, everybody was, but you know, whether it's the toilet paper, whether it's the groceries, whether it's the homeschooling, the Wi-Fi, whatever it was, it is always the woman, if there is a man and a woman in, in the household, it always seems to fall to the woman to carry that responsibility. And it is just as true in the workplace that women are more often than not the ones given the the, the unthanked, uh, unrewarded admin, because you're good at organizing. No, we're good at organizing because we became good at organizing because we weren't given the choice to not be good at it. And so it's not a policy argument. And, you know, I love policies. I'm very happy to talk about policy with you. But I just think as a society, as a culture, we have a really great opportunity to reset. And, you know, it was tragic. It is tragic. Um, that there is a, uh, a disease that is impacting one gender more than the other. But let's not forget that for centuries, there have been medical issues that have impacted women more than men. And we have never seen fit to think about gender, uh, you know, sex disaggregation of data or gender disaggregation by data um, until now, because it is affecting and killing men. And yet, you know, when women suffer, when women have, you know, many, many health effects, the health system has pushed them away. And so let's use this as the, the kind of the catapult, the leverage to change the way we think about, um, you know, gender equality in all of our systems, in our culture and in our society, because it doesn't have to be like this in the future and it shouldn't be. I love it. Equality is the answer. There we go. That's that's this evening in a little nutshell thank you Russian that's great so TT over to you what yeah you so I so I definitely agree with everybody absolutely um and I definitely feel like um things like workplace culture um I, I think a lot about this and how toxic it can be sometimes and especially if you're a woman and especially if you think about the intersectionalities within I just think you know what was um, freeing at first anyway, I know the pandemic and in lockdown was very difficult for a lot of people, um, but there was, if you're in a toxic work environment, if you're in a really sexist working environment, whatever it is, there was, there felt like almost some relief by not physically being in an office or physically being around those people. And, um, but I'm, I'm really hoping that the pandemic does change the culture in how fast we always have to move. You know, um, it's proven that, you know, we, that we have been pr productive and we have still been able to, to kind of get on with work, whatever, but it's, um, but for me, a lot of the time I've been thinking about, yeah, how, how fast everything is. It's just the speed of everything or, you know, you have, and I just think um, by kind of removing that, let's, let's talk about um, that a lot more. Like, you know, we've been able to connect still, like about a lot of my job, um, my last job was working um, within um, international artists and, and it was so much, I'm, I'm connecting with people in Beirut, I'm connecting with people in, um, in Colombia, in, in Zimbabwe, whatever, and, and it was absolutely fine. And, um, and a part of my um, wellness and well-being was um, kind of sitting in on discussions over the pandemic and I'm, um, I'm sitting in talking with people in, you know, different countries and it was and it was really amazing and it allowed me to kind of slow down and appreciate what I had as well. I was talking with lots of different types of people and um, and we don't build that in enough. You know, I still feel there is when we talk about kind of wellness and well-being in certain um, working environments or working professionals, you get like the eye rolls or all that's all a bit. But no, we, you know, we need that even more. And especially if you if you add on being a woman, you add on the caring responsibilities or you add on just because our gender and how yeah, sexist and um, things and people can be. And another thing is um, I have to I have to include like, equity in this, not just really equality, because what was really apparent as well about. So if we're thinking about healthcare and and um, what what unearthed a lot during the pandemic, so many different things. Right. There was it was a very political um, 18 months or so with Black Lives Matter, etc. Very, very political. In one sense, that's brilliant because um, it unearthed so many things. It brought it to the surface um, because we had to pay attention because there was no other major things happening, you know, type of thing. Um, so we had to pay attention. And what was even more apparent was um, the how Black women are let down in the healthcare um, a lot of the time. And, and I was 
sat in on so many Zooms, so many conversations. There were so many kind of like discussions. Let's talk about this. We've got a Zoom meet, da, 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 you know. And there was just these horrific stories of black women that have been let down by the NHS because there was this massive thing as well that a lot of, um, depending on, I don't want to put everybody under the same, but depending on what kind of culture you are from the black community, um, African-Caribbean, um, a lot of people distrusted the NHS. So therefore they distrusted the COVID vac vaccine um, because it was like, but I, you know, because even myself, my own personal experiences of being in labour and not being believed how much pain I was in, um, if anyone's ever had a baby, <laughs> painful, right? Duh. And it was just like, really, does it really hurt? You know, I had a lot of that. And um, yes, it yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, and there was just so many horrific stories and of of um, black women dying as well. So there was this massive distrust, you know, within NHS, um, especially around, I mean, there's people at my mum's age who's in her 60s who was like, I'm not getting that vaccine. No, I don't, you know, I don't trust it and stuff like that. And um, and like, but but so. I'm hoping that that could become a positive though, because it's it's all unearthed, you know? So I'm hoping that I don't want life to be the same ever again, because it shouldn't, because I don't think necessarily the old way was working anyway. Um, and I just think hopefully this does expose things that were broken, workplace culture, abuse, um, all, all of those things I've just said, hopefully it does expose it, unearths it. We can talk about it a lot more because we can bring more people together. I know a lot of people are sick of Zoom, but we can bring a lot more people together over Zoom to talk about these things rather than just, you know, because as we know, the people that make the decisions about women, women's bodies, women, whatever, are men, white men usually. So they're no longer just, just stuck in a room talking about this anymore with the door shut and then it gets rolled up. This is what we're doing. We, you know, there are a lot more people included in those conversations now. So I, I want that to be a good thing. I want that to continue. We still got so far to go with so many of these different things, but because it's, it has to be unearthed, it had to be exposed. I'm really hoping that it will continue to be, but there'll be um, a journey where things will change. It won't just be unearthed and, and just left. You know, it'll be unearthed and be like, right, we've got to do something about this now. That's fantastic. Thank you, Titi. I think you, you made a few really fantastic points. I want to just kind of grab on there that the idea of slowing down and well-being, it's so important in that people are starting to acknowledge that, you know, we've seen people have got really into gardening, that sort of thing during the pandemic. But actually, there's also the kind of counter to that, whereas now you can do Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call. I know I came straight from one into this one. And People forget to even take a break to like go to the loo because you're just booked in back to back. And I guess my worry is that, yeah, the world is so much more accessible now and it's so easy to kind of like bring people together from everywhere. And, but the temptation is to do that all the time. And I think right at the beginning in particular, there was always this thought of could this meeting have been an email? And I think I worry that we're yes, going. Yes, it could have. Yes. 100%. There's so many of those where you're like, yeah. Yeah. You can Not just send this me a text. This meeting's great. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's a really important point, isn't it, about how do we kind of schedule in time out? And it, that's something that we really need to kind of learn as we come out of this. Next one up, do you know of any women whose living situation has changed dramatically during covid um, so to kind of start this one off, I was working with a woman who was so worried that she was working in healthcare and had high exposure to coronavirus, had, you know, a vulnerable child and had elder relatives. She moved out of the family home in order to be able to continue to work through the pandemic as a nurse. And that story is actually one that we've kind of heard over and over again through this pandemic is about healthcare workers who have literally extricated themselves from the family household for sometimes months at a time in order to try and keep themselves and their loved ones safe and I think the long-term implications of that for that family for those relationships I, I'm not sure how you ever really get over that in that way how you ever really get through going through what is going to be what has been an incredibly traumatic 18 months having taken yourself away from your social network and your support networks to keep yourself safe I think that's probably the one that kind of most hits me so who do I come to first this time Titi can I come to you first yeah I mean I must admit I the, the so the, the women that I do know that have had to um that, that to move or whatever it was more to do with that they were made redundant and they were freelancers in the arts and cultural sector 
Um, and some of them had to move back home. So if they were based in London, say, or a major city, they had to kind of maybe move back to, you know, where, where their parents or whatever were from. That happened a lot, but I must admit that's not just to women, but um, it was a lot of, yeah, a lot of freelancers got, you know, hit really badly um, in the arts and cultural sector. So there was a lot of that. It was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. So there was, there was a, a lot of um, people that were really on low paid jobs anyway, predominantly women who were, yeah, the bar staff in the theatres or that, you know, they, they were on the box office, for instance. Or, or whatever or hosting or facilitating and um, it was like well they already were on low pay anyway and then because of the pandemic it was like they they couldn't afford even the flat share that they were in I mean none of these people probably like had their own flat like even that kind of situation so they had to like move back home or whatever maybe and um um but yeah that's that's I'm not I don't have um any um I don't know anybody that's moved for the reasons that you that you've said but it was more to do with their job situation yeah no, I think that's it's really important because I think we do tend to forget that the majority of people in those positions are women yeah. um, and the majority of people on zero hours contracts who, as a result, would not get any kind of furlough are women. Yeah. Um, and so the knock on implications for them and potentially their families are huge mm-hmm. of the way and um, that the pandemic's hit and the way that protections have or have not been put in place for those people, I think, is going to have a huge long term impact for so many. Um, Eliane, can I come to you next? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, during the lockdowns, particularly the the first lockdown, I think I and many other mothers I know, we all felt like 1950s housewives because we were at home with the kids all day. Um, but interestingly, now it's a different kind of difficult, I think, for me, because... And, and many people I know, a lot of our support networks have thinned out as they have for so many people, not just mothers. And so, you know, for example, I mean, in, in childcare terms, you know, grandparents can't really help out anymore, um, which is a big source of support to a lot of mothers. Um, nurse, a lot of nurseries are on the brink of collapse and the whole sector is experiencing huge difficulties. So I guess I my feeling is it's a, it's a kind of a weird um, situation that on the one hand we're coming out the other end hopefully of this pandemic, but um, but there's a strange feeling that everything social and communal has kind of thinned out, even just in terms of you know sharing childcare after school and those informal networks of um, playdates and so on all that has kind of fallen away to a large extent. And I, and I guess it's part of a general thinning out of community that I worry about, um, not just for mothers, but um, so that's what I've really noticed coming out of the pandemic is really the need to, um, to, to, to rebuild those, com- those communities and those live face-to-face networks because, you know, children, as we know, <laughs> can't be looked after by Zoom. Thank you. Now we've, we've suddenly got two questions coming, which is very exciting. So Resham, I'm going to come to you and then I'm going to try and squeeze in both of these questions because I'm nothing if not ambitious. So Resham, do you know someone whose living circumstances have changed? Uh, yeah, so, so I speak um, about domestic abuse relationships because I was in a couple of abusive relationships when I was younger. Um, and when I realised that the domestic abuse um, situation was getting worse, um, two friends and I set up something called Hit Against Hit to try and, um, you know, you do a hit workout. We got some Olympic stars and some of the famous athletes to donate workouts um, that you could do online. You still can uh, if you wanted to try and raise money for refuge and um and um another charity uh, whose name has escaped me entirely which is embarrassing because we we raised a lot of money um but a women's age um but actually i didn't personally know women affected but i did know a lot of women who i was hearing about through my connections in the sector who were really struggling and so i think um that to me was the biggest one but i'll keep it short because i don't have a personal story um but i am happy to answer a magic wand question because i think that is one very easy thing um that i would like to recommend to improve the lives of all women um after the pandemic and other than everything we've already said and the obvious word being equality, um, a more practical solution I think in the short term is expectations. And I would like us all to be kinder to each other, but also as a society to enforce um, 
lower expectations and pressure on women because I think we expect women um, to be all things to everybody and that just means we are always setting ourselves and each other up for failure um, and we should not play along with the patriarchy when they try and put us in that position so so that would be my my immediate one that I would love to change. Thank you. I'm loving that you leapt onto the magic wand question. That's great. So um, just in case the other two of you haven't seen in the chat, there's a question of if you had a magic wand, what one single thing would you like to improve the lives of all women after the pandemic? My thing is I want an end to unpaid care because it's a magic wand. It's a big thing, but all unpaid care for elderly relatives, for children, for whoever, pay for it. There we go. There's my magic wand. So. Eliane, what's your magic wand thing going to be? Well, I guess I've already waved it um, in terms of a four day working week um, for everyone, um, but it has to be imposed top down. So to get beyond this kind of difficult language of choice that is so divisive. Um, so yeah, and um, yeah, I'm, I, I wanna echo yours, um, paid um, care work. I think unpaid care work is really something that is emerging as a theme in this conversation and so many conversations. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's almost like an, um, it's an invisible um, fact that's all around us. We kind of cease to notice it almost, the, the fact that it's, you know, the vast majority of care work is done by women of both children and older people. Um, and in nursery settings and in school settings, um, which is just bizarre, really, if you sort of hidden in plain sight as a as a, an outrage, really, in our in our culture. Um, and yes, the recognition of that work and and valuing valuing care work and also paying for it. Fantastic, TT, over to you. What's your magic wand item? Um, I think it would be yeah, about about the, the the value and the contributions that women make to society, British society, whatever the world you know <laughs> um and um just when we talk about um women that we have to remember that um a lot of people do think about white women as the norm as the you know the, the default and our experiences that haven't all been the same um so like my example about the healthcare and stuff so for me it's a, it's making sure that when we are having conversations around gender equality that's why I always use the equity, equity as well. Let's bring that into um, because we are not all equal. Um, is is about you're making sure we are thinking about um, um, all the women or people that who you know represent women, all all, all us. So in black women, um, black disabled women, black disabled gay women, um, Asian gay. You know what I mean? Type of thing. So we just have to make sure that when we say women, we 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 know what we're talking about. We know who we're talking about. That's great, thank you. I'm looking at Emma to see whether I've got time for another question. Yeah, go on. Can I? <laughs> thank you. Um, we've got two in, I'm only gonna be able to sneak in one, so I'm going for the one that came in first because that seemed fairest. So um, you spoke a lot about inequalities in domestic work, and I'm wondering on a more personal level how you tackle that in your own relationships, romantic and other. Um, so I've had a chance to think about this. So. I think I come at it from quite an interesting angle because I'm a disabled woman. And so there are some domestic tasks and that I really struggle to do physically because I will fall over or, you know, pour stuff on myself. Um, and so I think that has kind of helped and I feel almost like I have a framework around which to say, this is something I find difficult. You do this, I'll do that. And actually, because I've got those kind of physical challenges in place, it makes it almost easier for me to talk about it than it potentially did when I was in relationships prior to becoming disabled. That's actually a transition that I've kind of seen, but I appreciate that's quite a you know niche lived experience. So I'm just gonna go across the row. So TT, you're first, please. Um, so I've got a really amazing husband, like he's, he's great. Uh, you know, I love doing life with him, but he really underestimated what I do in the house and what I do with my little boy. And he was like, oh, oh gosh. Oh, so when you said you move, oh, that's what, oh, oh, that's what you, you know. So number one, I've been more appreciated, which is lovely. You know, he's like, right, okay. You know, that that was a real shift. Um, and also it is, I just think women are superheroes, whether you've got camera responsibilities, whether you're, you know, whatever, I don't, I just think we are superheroes. I want capes. We need more capes. Okay, Eliane, over to you. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a whole situation in itself. Um, but I think, you know, I think competence as a mother is acquired from day one. Um, so mothers stay on their own um, in hospital after they give birth. And even just that one night, um, you, you, you learn so much about how to look after a baby. And actually, and then that competence gap is entrenched during maternity leave. So by the t- even just in you know six months um, when the baby is six months old, um, the the gap between the, the mother and the father is so entrenched that it can be really difficult to then equalize. And I, and there's that phrase maternal gatekeeper syndrome, um, where mothers you know almost it's their domain, the domestic domain is there, so they guard it um, and don't let fathers in. But I always think that phrase implies that mothers sort of have power over over their dominion and actually you know it's not real power because it's not validated by the public world outside so it's um uh yeah so I think it's really tricky and I think also because children change as they grow up um and and work patterns change it's something that needs constant renegotiation and and you know it's something that I've had in my own partnership um is that we have to reset um uh, and have conversations about who does what, you know, really regularly because those imbalances will creep back almost imperceptibly if you don't have those explicit conversations. And, you know, we've heard about the mental load, you know, the, the kind of cooking and cleaning is the tip of the iceberg. And then there's all of the, the mental admin that goes on beneath the surface and often the the competence gap or the inequality is maintained just because the mother has all the other mum's phone phone numbers in her phone so she'll be the one who arranges the play dates and I have this in my own partnership I say well I'll just arrange the play date because I've got her phone number but you know I'm really resentful but then you have to actually sit down and transfer the phone numbers which takes time so yeah, I think it's a I think it's a, a matter of constant maintenance um, in partnerships. But you know the the structure of work just doesn't help because the the full time dad part time mum model is is so ubiquitous that um, that competence is acquired on the job. And if you're only there after six or seven o'clock in the evening, you just don't learn how to kind of fine tune. Um, those interactions with your with your child so it's so often that the mother just says oh I'll do it myself and then she starts treating her partner almost like another child in the family and so the child so the so the dad becomes resentful um, that he's being treated like treated like that the mother becomes resentful because she's doing all the boring drudgery <laughs> in the household so I think that yeah I just think that the this dynamic is really entrenched and it really needs work Thank you. I feel like we've just got some great spoilers for Eliane's book, which I now very much am writing onto my reading list. Um, so, Resham, do you want to? Yeah. So it's a slightly different one because um, thank you very much, pandemic. But my fiance and I were meant to get married last year and obviously didn't. Um, and um, I live with my parents. We sold his flat and we're hoping to buy a place. And again, pandemic. Um, so actually, we've spent a lot of time. We've been together seven years. We've spent a lot of time, especially at my parents' house together. And um, when I was younger, it was very normal for the women to do the cooking everybody to eat together but the women to serve and then the men would kind of go retire to the sofa and the women would tidy and I have a cousin brother who's two years younger than my twin sister and I um, and I'd be like well if I'm in the kitchen he's in the kitchen if he's not in the kitchen I'm not in the kitchen and we had quite a few family bust ups where I, I just said I'm sorry um, you know you do what you want in your generation but I will not be treated differently and so from day one when my when my fiance came over um, and son-in-laws or future son-in-laws are normally kind of treated like special VIP guests. And I kind of said, no, I don't want any of that. He is, you know, my parents should be sitting and we should be working. Um, and credit where it's due, he is 100% hands-on. And he, he used to try a bit to kind of go like, oh, but you're better at it, or you're faster at it. And I go, that's fine, I'll sit in the kitchen with you. And sometimes I've sat in the kitchen with him while it's his turn to cook. And it's been an hour and a half and I've gone, oh my God, this is a 15 minute meal. How is this still going? But I kind of force myself to not stand up and take over because, you know, as you, as you said, that actually, um, you know, if I, 
allow it to become my domain, it will be very hard to undo. And it's even things like I prefer cooking. So in his flat, he didn't have a dishwasher and he would wash dishes and he'd kind of go, oh, we can just carry on like this. And I went, well, whoa, whoa, no, we can't because when we move into a place together, we'll get a dishwasher and then your job will be gone. Your job will be a loading the dishwasher thing. I'll still be lumbered with cooking. So I was kind of like, no, we need to keep evaluating this. Um, but we have a, a slightly different different um, future potentially because I've stood for parliament twice um, hoping for third time lucky and we've spoken frequently about the fact that if I become an MP at the next election which is a big if but if um, then I'll be an MP um, in my early to mid 30s um, we will have kids hopefully um, God willing and he will be the parent who has to assume responsibility whether he wants to or not because unless something changes in parliament significantly in the next few years I'll be doing late night votes Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays and he will be solely responsible for the children and management of the house whether I want to be or not so we've actually had to do a lot of discussions um, about what that will look like and interestingly and this is why I talked about expectations he gets a lot of people saying like um, you know oh how do you how do you feel about the fact that you'd be Philip May or how do you feel about the fact that you'd be Mr Thatcher to her and he's secure enough and confident enough that he kind of goes, yeah, that's fine. I'd be thrilled. I'm, I'm OK with that. Um, but the fact is, is that he is kind of ribbed about it and it's considered less manly that I would be taking that role instead of him. And he would be doing more of my work. And that's me doing air quotes because I don't believe that is my work. Um, but yeah, just just a different way of having to approach it that we'll have to manage if, it, if we get there. So I think there's a definite message of communication kind of running through all four of us, isn't there? It's about that kind of constant communication, resetting, re-evaluating and, yeah, making plans based on life. Right. I'm very aware, Emma, that we're already running over. So I just want to say thank you, everybody. I've learned masses and it's been fantastic to meet you all. Thanks so much for tuning in to listen to this Arcola Conversation. All episodes in our Arcola Conversation series are now available online.